Um, so I think we are. I think we are actually now live. As I did say, soft start, and this is indeed a soft start. Um, uh, Alistair Kelly, hello. Um, hello. Hello. Uh, wait a minute. I can do once. I tell you what. Before I do, before I press the button that means all of us will appear, I'll just say, can everyone? Is, is the sound coming through? People in the YouTube chat. Hello, people in the YouTube chat. Is the sound coming through? When it is, let me know. Um, marvelous. I think. I think everything's running. Uh, as ever, highly professional. Um, there we go. I'll just do out my obligatory we are live tweet. And uh, that's it. Uh, yes, people can hear us. Right, marvellous. Right, I'm going to... This is this is new ter- territory, everyone in the chat, because I'm going to press this and hopefully it won't break. It's. I think it's worked. <laughs> hello, Alistair and Kelly. Hello, hello. Um, we have Alistair and Kelly are here too. Uh, Alistair Baldwin and Kelly Shuttleworth are here um, actually, uh, Alistair and Kelly, would you like to introduce yourselves first before we before we crack on? Um, Kelly, do you want to go first? Sure. sure. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm Kelly. Kelly. I'm, I'm a, a research, research assistant at the Institute, Institute for Government, government um, and we're kind of junior researcher, researcher on, this on this paper. paper. And then, yeah. yeah. Um, um, currently, I'm not, not, not a not transport, transport professional, professional by, 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 <laughs> by, by, <laughs> or anything. So yeah, I'm a more of a generalist. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's but that's quite interesting, actually. Devolution is, I mean, it, these things all feed. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I'm sure maybe we'll touch on this later, but I presume all these things sort of tentacle across each other, different different domains. Um, yeah, um, Alistair. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, I, I, I'm Alistair. I, I was the senior researcher uh, on this project. project. Um, my background, background is in local transport policy. policy. Uh, I'm, I'm going to get the biggest claim that the views I developed at IFG rather than those of my current employer. employer. But, but um, yeah, my, yeah, my background is in transport policy, planning, planning business cases, cases uh, appraisal, appraisal and evaluation type things. Nice one. And there's a cat behind me, so that is definitely video with me because there will always be cats that appear. <laughs> which cat? Which cat have we got on camera right now? So, so this, this is Oscar, Oscar who is most famous, famous in the Institute of government, government for destroying, destroying my previous bookcase, bookcase while I was in the presentation. <laughs> oh well, nice to meet Oscar as well. That's good. So we have three, three, not two, three guests um, so far. Um, it sounds like potentially we have other guests that might make appearance, cameo appearances later, which is very exciting. Um, oh, there's a bit of echo. Uh, apparently, uh, how bad is the echo in the on the? Yeah, maybe it's because my ears are close to the um, microphone. Is that is that better, everyone? How's that? Uh, they'll tell us in the chat. Anyway, right, before, without further ado, um, so we are going to be talking about, uh, today we are doing, a, this evening we're doing a page turn, uh, which has become somewhat of a, a rail natter staple, um, uh, which is where we're going to go through, we're going to go through um, this report. So this is the report that you um, both authored, um, uh, how governments use evidence to make transport policy. It's a it's a does what it says on the tin title, and I'm um, I was so so this isn't the first time I'll be flicking through. Sometimes I do these PDFs, and it's the first time I'm looking at them. But um, this time, um, uh, yeah, this time I uh, yeah I uh, sorry I'm reading I'm reading chat about echoes, but uh, yeah I'm not quite sure how to solve the echoes when they anyway right we'll try and. Uh, We'll try and work through the guest echo. We'll, I'll, I'll try and work, fix that when we're talking again later. Anyway, uh, yeah, I had a flick through this report, and it's it's fascinating, really interesting, particularly the comparisons between different organizations, uh, between different uh, regions, uh, between different countries, um, and some very interesting conclusions. Uh, and the the relationship between transparency, modal splits, uh, it was just really it was just a fantastic report, really really interesting. Um, 
I uh, yeah. So without basically, I think it's going to be. We've already five minutes in, and I think it's uh, echoes to one side. We're gonna we're gonna crack on. Um, without further ado, basically, um, welcome to tonight's uh, Rail Natter. As the Intercity 225 fades away, um, ah, it's a, it's an image of the Institute for Government. Right, let's bring, let's let's do this. This is all very fancy technology. Look at this, three stacked faces. Right, I'm now going to mute my microphone while you speak because that that's to see if that solves the echo problems. Um, first of all, uh, who wants to introduce the Institute? Uh, Kelly, do you want to just introduce the Institute for Government to us? Let us know what this organisation is, what they do, and um, who funds them, and all these sorts of questions you've often get asked, I'm sure. 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 The, um, the Institute for Government, or the, the IFG, is, um, is, is a think tank working to make government more effective. Um, it's um, mostly funded by the um, Gatsby Foundation, which is part of like the, the Sainsbury load of foundations. Um, like, the majority of the funding comes from there. Um, and it, yeah, it works across just a, a quite a broad range of like government related topics. So like a lot on policy making, which is where this fits in, as well as like on so on devolution, as I mentioned, on kind of different bits of Whitehall, lots on the civil service um, and public services um, more broadly, producing kind of long research papers um, like this one, as well as kind of short um, like content for social media, like explainers and blogs and kind of medium insight papers. It's got about like 30, 35 researchers working right. there at the moment, I think. Um, uh, and yeah, I think is it about 10 years old. I should know how old it is. I don't maybe just over 10 years. Um, it's, yeah, OK, that's interesting. So so I mean, it, yeah, it covers quite a lot of different policy domains. I mean, there's there's quite a quite a wide spectrum of different um yeah, it, it, it's there's, there's certainly been a few different interesting. I remember there was quite a lot, quite a lot going on during Brexit times. I think there were quite a few different papers being put out. Lots of interesting challenges for government to understand what on earth it's uh, it was up to uh, at that point. So uh, yeah, um, some interesting stuff getting kicked out. I've I've fixed the echo by the way. Uh, if you're if, as uh, everyone in the chat, I just forgotten to mute one of my inputs. It's my fault entirely. Um, so. That's the Institute for Government. I think uh, basically it's time to whiz over to the report. So uh, this is it. It's as simple as that. It's uh, <laughs> um, this uh, the, the report. I mean, it's, it's about 80-ish pages. We're not going to go through fine-tooth combing each one. But I think what we'll do is I'll go through it as if I'm going to go through this report as if, um, well, everyone who's in the chat has seen me do this before. But I'm going to go through this as if kind of as if I'm reading it, picking out things that interest me. But also as guests, hopefully you'll see what you, you can see what's on screen. If there's anything that you particularly thought was interesting, or or that I've missed that was that's relevant, um, or I've said something that's complete load of rubbish, um, yeah, just just stop me, pick me up on on, on it, because um, yeah, there's quite a lot to get through, but I, I think we'll manage it in in about an hour. Everyone in the chat is now ticking off. They they have bingo on these now. It's got to the point where people have bingo of the catchphrases I use inadvertently because my brain goes into autopilot and repeats things. One of them is this is not a professional. This doesn't count for the bingo, by the way. One of them is uh, either sarcastically saying this is professional or saying this is unprofessional. Uh, others are related to well, yeah. Um, we'll we'll get there. So without further ado, 
Uh, so there's, yeah, there's a bit of quick intro. Of, yeah, no, that's fine. Just explain the report and we've got the, the contents. It's, it's fairly neatly structured. Um, so so we go through, so there's a bit of a, so obviously you've got the standard thing of pulling out the summary and the recommendations, but um, there's, there's an introduction. Then we go through the five kind of sec or four sections, um, not including the conclusions. So you start with types of transport policy decisions, which is it's quite an interesting and useful way to, uh, kind of thing to have brought out in the abstract. Um, uh, the institutions that commission use evidence, so that's talking about the, the organizations and the institutions. Uh, then you look at the evidence and then the people who actually create and apply the evidence. So it's, it's quite, feels like quite a neatly split up um, sort of structure for the report. Um, yeah, and uh, so I think let's crack on. Um, I'm not going to dwell on the summary because I think, unless there's anything particular that you thought was pulled out in the summary that doesn't get well, kind of picked out later, um, we'll, I think we'll just crack on. Because um, yeah, there's 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 some interesting. There are quite a few interesting points that, that are worth pulling out if you want to summarize this. But we're going to do that anyway. That's the whole point of this is that we're going to this this whole episode is going to be to summarize this. And maybe we can come back to recommendations later. Actually, uh, any any thought? Uh, agreed, Alistair Kelly. Come back to recommendations later. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, cool. Um, so introduction right well this is it this is the this is the page turn um is, is the sound issues is all fixed everyone's happy lovely um oh, apparently you've already ticked off the professional square never mind um so you looked at uh, so basically th this report this whole report um assesses the uk's use of evidence in transport policy making um and you compared was there any particular reason why you chose the four other countries you know you chose new zealand germany sweden and the netherlands to compare against the uk was there a particular reason for that yeah, so uh, there were actually two projects this year that were sort of similar. Uh, so we had some colleagues who were working on uh, an international comparison of energy policy, and they just published their kind of final report uh, last week on, on energy efficiency. Um, and we were sort of looking for countries that had kind of interesting transport systems. So that were had some similarities to the UK that were sort of considered well-functioning broadly. Um, uh, but you know that, that might show some differences. So we picked uh, Sweden because it seemed pretty considered as pretty successful um, for things like rail and for, for kind of governance. That we thought Germany was interesting because the the kind of federal system was was mm. so different to the UK with so much at a regional level. Uh, Netherlands we picked because it turned out to be kind of a lot more interesting when we sort of end up looking into it. We picked it because the stereotypical, well, everyone thinks the Netherlands is excellent at transport policy. Let's <laughs> see what we can dive into and, and get. And we picked New Zealand because uh, we were sort of very conscious of a lot of the work they'd done on the living standards framework over there and kind of like non-economic measures in policymaking. Mm. Uh, although I've got to say, Kelly and I do regret picking New Zealand only because of the 13-hour time difference <laughs> and trying to schedule interviewees, interviews with very lovely people at the Ministry of Transport who gave up their uh, their evenings that ended up being our early mornings. Yeah, crikey. I will also say we did try. We did want to do um, Japan, um, but no one no one got back to me at all. I oh, sent really? so many emails off, and not even a we've not like we've received this email. So, what That's could have strange. been? That is very strange because. Um, yeah, I mean, there is certainly some there's some cooperation on on transport policy between ourselves and Japan. Like our, the people doing the design for HS2 went over to Japan, but maybe yeah, I don't know, maybe a different part of government and they just weren't interested. That's a shame because that would be quite that would have been quite an interesting comparison actually. Yeah, Japan being in amongst the mix. Anyway, but these these four countries, um, in terms of, I mean, you might well touch on this later. And forgive me if I'm kind of second guessing, but we can gloss over it if we do. But 
so those four countries, they seem, what are the similarities and differences between those four, kind of more broadly? So not just about transport policy, but in terms of more broadly, just as a bit of context for, for, for the viewers. I mean, everyone knows those four countries, but more in terms of the data you've got, you know, things like demographic, population size, urban agglomeration or, or otherwise, any differences and similarities between the four more broadly than just transport? Yeah, I mean, so of, of them, the Netherlands obviously is very, very dense uh, in terms of its population density more than the UK and one of the highest in the world outside the sort of microstates. Um, New Zealand, sorry, New Zealand is obviously the reverse, the, the, mm. significantly the least dense, much more dispersed uh, population. And Sweden sort of has a slightly interesting geography with it being elements that are, that are very highly dense and, and other bits that are a bit more remote. And I think we try to sort of, we sort of discuss this a bit later in 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 the report um, about well actually you know your 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 palette of policy options aren't really the same uh, wherever you are you know New Zealand it isn't appropriate to build a giant metro that runs everywhere even if you really like building metros just because the the density isn't there the population isn't, isn't always there to serve it and the same in 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 the reverse in the Netherlands you don't have always have the space to do other things that you you want to do um, but yeah so they they're all similar in that sense they're all all very conveniently as well members of the oecd yeah. uh, which means that we could uh use the pretty very good um oecd international transport forum data which which is sort of the best the best attempt to to compare their data so we have a bit of a look here and there through the report at some of the outcomes and kelly very artfully did all of our did all of the, gra the graphical work and doing the comparisons between countries uh yeah. so that was that was also a, a sort of a slight factor was that it gave us something of a, of a baseline to look at outcomes on. In terms of um, in terms of like um, income equality and income inequality, are they sort of you know the, the spread of incomes well similarish to the UK in terms of like we have pretty we have quite wide income inequality, but in terms of the median, is it broadly the same? Uh, so this famously, Sweden has very high. Relatively low income inequality and very high sort of um, HDI human development index, and New Zealand does very well in HDI as well historically. Um, the UK is a bit of an outlier in terms of its sort of level of income inequality. Netherlands, everything is a little more confused because of its status as a low tax place for many corporate activities. So, so that makes some of the comparisons a little bit more difficult to draw when you're looking at kind of that pure GDP uh, type stuff. Uh, but yeah, there are there are some similarities. Obviously, New Zealand has a more primary industry-based economy in yeah. in a lot of ways with 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 agricultural exports and stuff like that. Um, but the European countries are not too totally dissimilar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kelly, yeah, was there anything anything else you picked up when you were doing drawing the comparisons? As in literally drawing them, not literally and figuratively. <laughs> Sorry, as you did more than draw them. I mean creating and defining and uh, writing. Uh, yeah, I should thank um, our graphics person, Melissa, actually made them look as pretty as they do now. I didn't I didn't make them look like that. Um, I'm not, no, I think um, I think Alistair's mostly mostly covered that. Not sure what I not sure what I'd add. So so we've got this. So so on this page, you're kind of explaining those um, sort of very, very broadly explaining the kind of the, the, the different uh, the way the different countries work. Uh, I think what's interesting is is picking out um, the structure yeah the, the differences between that made it interesting as comparison you were never going to find a country that was like almost identical to the uk as a comparator that, that was never going to work so yeah i think it's, it, these are countries that have lots of similar things going on 
um, but also usefully different systems of, of uh, well, as we'll see later on with the comparison, the, the, with the, the graphics and, and the kind of the descriptions of the comparisons, different ways of administering transport policy, which I think is really interesting. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, very rapidly, we've got the phrase Dutch cycling levels has appeared. I noticed that. Very nice. <laughs> it's impossible not to, like, everyone has to mind that idea of the Dutch cycling kind of uh, nirvana. Um, yeah, so so kind of... Yeah, so so here you just by the end of this you're describing uh, the kind of the, understanding the different outcomes of of transport policy not being simple, and so yep. for example you've picked out uh, road safety here in in this um, in in figure one, um, and yeah so so, Alistair, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, I've got. I was going to have a brief shout out for. Uh, I mentioned the previous page that Vatuva is uh, uh, not everything in Netherlands is is great. Uh, we you know we would. In a previous version of the report, there was a bit more discussion about this specific kind of uh, rail freight route that got mentioned in this month's Modern Railways, actually, oh. uh, I saw. Um, but even though even even you know, countries can be very successful at delivering one kind of infrastructure, it doesn't mean their whole transport policy system is great. You know, the UK, we sort of say, but a bit below, the UK has done quite well uh, and tends to do pretty well on road safety mm. uh, for and you know, for drivers and for passengers, it does less well on cycling, for cycling and walking. Um, but that doesn't mean it's great. It's kind of great, great at everything. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I was going to road safety is a good example of that. Yeah, because as you say, depending on how you design your infrastructure, um, you know, we we design our infrastructure to be very, you know, very car safety focused. But that doesn't necessarily mean, particularly in urban areas, that it's very um, broad user safety focus so yeah yeah okay that's 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 um yeah that's a useful kind of uh, comparison to draw out so um so then kind of you're kind of in this introduction talking about the importance of of using effective evidence in, in transport policy making and this this is where it jumped out to me as being something that's very interesting my uh, and why this report was so just absolutely captured my my attention as soon as i spotted it um to my mind, and, and we'll see how true this is by the end of by the end of this episode. Um, to my mind, the the UK has has got a lot of very very good evidence, uh, very good data that we could use. We just don't do a very good job of actually making use of that data in a joined up way. And, and I, you don't necessarily have to come in on that, but like we'll see how true my assumption was by the end of this. Um, that was my gut feeling. Like the UK is very very good at collecting data as as to my mind, making it open data, we're maybe okay at that, uh, making it accessible, uh, but um, yeah, we, we're good at collecting data, we have lots of really good like origin destination data, for example, lots of really good data sources, but we don't make use of it, so whether that's, so that's kind of, so what you've gone through, you're then explaining why it's useful, why it's a good idea to use evidence to develop transport policy, which might seem like an obvious thing, but actually, uh, when I've gone through here, it's quite, you know, you go through these pages, the, the early part of the report, the introduction, and it's a really good explanation of what data looks like, ways it can be, um, ways it can be applied. Um, so the different types of evidence here as well. Um, I, I'm just going to keep going through. Yeah, so, so kind of that's the introduction, really. It's why it's a good idea to use evidence and what that evidence can actually look like. Um, so it's kind of, yeah, I thought that's kind of quite valuable little uh, input at the start there for, um, for anyone reading. Um, so that's the introduction. Uh, as I say, cut in on me if I'm if I'm uh, if if you've anything to add, but I'm I'm going to keep hammering forwards. We're already at twenty past. I said time flies on these. Th Actually, no, I didn't tell you time flies on these things. It's an hour. It flies by. It'll be like horribly quick. I'm, I'm we'll we'll probably be at page twenty two by the time we get to the end of the hour. But I'll, I'll try and hammer forwards anyway. Right. So, um, <laughs> this is one of my favourite sentences in the whole report. 
In the absence of an overall national strategic direction in the UK or England, there are three types of decisions that are made. That for me is like, uh, yeah, that's the whole problem. <laughs> Britain does not have a plan at all. We have no plan. We have no direction, no policy, no no overall objective that the DFT has as a, as a catchphrase. It doesn't say, you know, it doesn't say the transport hierarchy is what drives us or anything like that. No, it's just we, we do transport with a TM at the end. You know, that's pretty much what the DFT does. And so I like that sentence because, um, but anyway, you end up with lots of these different schemes all vying for attention. So you've got, so you've listed off these, you've got major infrastructure projects and programs, you know, HS2, uh, RIS2, the two key examples, um, smaller infrastructure schemes. So like local road projects, bypasses, new railways, or not new railways, sorry, but like things like new stations, local stations. Um, uh, yeah, things that are funded centrally and allocated centrally, but are delivered by local government, um, which bids for funding, and then individual policies, sort of instrumental policies, things like bus concessionary travel or, um, yeah, cutting off petrol and diesel vehicle sales. So, so these are the three things, the three kind of um, types of decision. So, so I, I suppose it's worth saying you're framing policy as as decision as types of decision. I suppose maybe that is a definition of policy is 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 the framework of decision making. Um, and so these are the three different sorts of decisions that are made in terms of transport policy. Um, is that UK specific there, or is that? Oh, yes. Yeah, this, yeah, that's yeah. that's 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 UK specific, and probably maybe even England specific. But mm. that we were Kelly and I were sort of stretching around to try and work out. Well, actually, okay, how how can you try and classify the sorts of decisions that that we make in transport policy, as particularly in central government, uh, kind of in in the UK? And yeah, we'll go on to talk about the, the sort of centralised nature of, of of England, particularly. But that was the our, our sort of best best way of of splitting it. You have these big big things like like hs2 like RIS, like crossrail that have their own kind of stat either processes by their own legislation or they they have you know very specific bespoke things and you have the kind of like day-to-day -day project approvals project funding for, for sort of smaller projects and then you have the non-infrastructure stuff which is the your, your sort of policies about yeah about uh, concessionary travel or, or ticketing or, or or things like that that's sort of a a misc section yeah 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 it's, it's interesting yeah I, I see that you say it's basically england because i suppose you you see a dis slightly different approach emerging in the devolved nations so wales has a kind of an interesting relationship with transport devolution in that they've got they've got quite a lot of the power but they haven't got any of the fund funding capability or haven't got much of the funding capability scotland it's a bit of a clearer picture in that scotland has essentially entirely an autonomous set of transport policy delivery and yeah correct me if i'm wrong on any of this but to my mind it's entirely devolved they have funding powers they have and and that means that in scotland there is it's not as rose down in, in this part of the world I, i'm a former well, i am a scot but i live down here in new york um it can look quite rosy over the border but actually they have similar challenges of like la actually a lack of direction a lot of investment in roads contrary to headline policy statements there's sort of some of the same challenges actually that we see in westminster really so it's not quite a perfect rosy picture but you know with things like railway electrification there is a bit more of a broad look at strategy and some of those things do drive in a way that perhaps doesn't happen um in england so yeah so that I, yeah it's interesting i think we yeah we'd say what what we found was that uh, the reference to England is England is the only country which doesn't have a kind of national strategy. So mm. the what the you have the Scottish transport uh, Scottish transport strategy. There's a, a new Welsh one as of last year. Yeah. Uh, Northern Ireland one is pretty. They are, they, uh, they're they're working on a new one in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Um, but I mean, resources are just uh, are so strapped there that I think um, that that's a bit of a struggle. 
Um, so, so I think Northern Ireland's a bit of an aside there, but both Wales and, and Scotland definitely um, both have new-ish um, transport strategies and kind of delivery programmes for them. So, so Northern Ireland, it's worth, you know, I, I glossed over, I kind of didn't even mention Northern Ireland, which is uh, bad of me. I always slap myself in the wrist when I do that. I always try and refer to GB, not UK, because the railway being somewhat of a self-contained thing, it's easy to, anyway, waffle. Um, Northern Ireland, what's the, what is the structure? Of, is, is transport entirely devolved, uh, both funding and, is it? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's most, it's nearly entirely devolved. There are certain, I mean, there are the, always the kind of odd, um, like licensing things or, or that are, that aren't, yeah. but yeah, um, it's, it's kind of, it's even more extensive than Scotland, especially because it's just so separate. Yeah. 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 It's entire. I mean, it, it would make fundamentally it is entirely, <laughs> unless Boris gets his tunnel, uh, magically anytime in the next 10 years it is an entirely self-contained sort of transport. Well, uh, connected with the rest of, uh, the Island of Ireland. Um, yeah okay so that and it's yeah what as an aside for anyone i often but people point out oh you know look at the you know people do the the correlation not causation thing and they say look at how wonderful railways have been under privatization uh look how much the uh the passenger ridership has increased and then if you just overlay the northern ireland figures it's pretty much the same rise in sort of ridership in northern ireland despite the fact that it's been nationalized there the whole time or rather state operated uh in a very different way to the structure in the uk um so yeah it's northern ireland is interesting kind of with with some of the same pressures that the rest of the uk but but it's entirely self-contained transport system it's it can it's a useful sort of thing to uh, kind of microcosm to compare the uh gb versus northern ireland on that anyway right i digress as often i do um so uh yeah, so that, that's that's kind of so you split this off into the three different types of decision making, and you sort of elaborated on that, I presume. So that's so that's really a quick. So that's part one, which is just a quick introduction into the types of transport policy decisions, which is fairly straightforward. Um, so then things start getting more detailed, right? At this point, we're looking at the institutions that commission and use this evidence that we've talked about, um, and so we're starting with the UK. So this isn't just a UK specific section. This is where we've got our nice graphics. Um, so we start with the UK. Um, and so this is talking about, so this is really the, the crux of it. The UK government in Westminster develops the policy, provides the bulk of funding, uh, covering rail, strategic highways, uh, yada, yada. Um, trans, uh, yeah, so you've picked out that Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland have got that substantially devolved policy. Um, so you kind of talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Okay. So here, this is this, yeah. So you've talked about the fact the most comprehensive plan of the of the devolved administrations is the Scottish one. Um, yeah. So talk, So that's a twenty year horizon, which is interesting. Um, Wales. Um, yeah. So Wales are. So so yeah. You can see that the, the, there's you sort of talk about the others as well uh, to a lesser extent. Um, yeah. The other uh, the, this last paragraph here talks about the challenge of the devolved nations, particularly when it comes to things like roads and railways, is that they don't just stop at the border. These things are like continuous. And also, even if a railway is entire, even if a bit of infrastructure is entirely within the Scottish border. Um, I've been having a conversation with Professor Mark Berry about this today, uh, as often we do lock horns over this. You cannot extricate the fact that most of almost every regional railway service in Wales passes through England and indeed passes through some of the most congested bottlenecks in England. And that's true for roads as well. So it's not just, you know, rail policy, but actually for, for any kind of long, medium and long distance transport and freight, um, it's, you cannot really separate those networks um, out. 
so you know they you know they, North Wales relies on crew relies on sort of uh, Merseyside uh, and then stuff coming down to the south and indeed anything that's going from North Wales to South Wales relies on on either crew Manchester or or, or you know, other parts of the network which or Birmingham even um, so yeah so that's quite interesting so it's so that you, you kind of talk about how that implies uh, how that influences the way the organisations talk about policy. Um, so what I'm going to do is shove this infographic, shove the infographic up, and then we can just talk about it for a bit. That's probably the most sensible thing to do. Um, who wants to talk, Kelly or uh, or Alistair? Who wants to pick it up and talk about this entire graphic? <laughs> I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, so yeah, so Kelly produced uh, an excellent version of these for each of our, our our countries that was then designed up by our. our um, comms team so what we were trying to do was capture or, on one page the kind of most relevant sort of organizations for transport evidence but also facts about the country and the, and the kind of transport outcomes in terms of their kind of modal split and we haven't captured everything i think we say somewhere else in here that like we counted at least 20 different organizations within the kind of dft family that have some kind of evidence role there's other things that aren't on there like the transport research laboratory kind of isn't on there uh, which is sort of a quasi non-governmental sort of organization um so we were, we were trying to kind of capture everything but i think we what we sort of can see from this one is that the dft's kind of really at the heart of everything it's our yeah. second one of our larger our larger ministries and it has the biggest sort of set of responsibilities of, of any of our ministries in terms of kind of what it what it gets involved in and then obviously it has the control over the highways england and, and network rails the kind of on the delivery delivery arm and just just for anyone who's not sure um and correct me if i'm wrong on this ft is full-time employee right That's, yes so it's yeah giving so, it giving yeah. it a proxy for organizational size right yeah so you, you've not lived until you've until uh, you've tried to go through the civil service statistics for other countries to work at how many people worked at minor government agencies. That's all I can say. <laughs> so, yeah. So, 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 really, it's that that, that huge amount of centralisation. Okay, part the DVSA and the DVLA at the, at the moment because they've got a lot of clerical staff. Hence, the numbers are larger. I, I kind of guess. But the DFT, the, the the Department for Transport is just. It's the scale is. You know, it's three thousand full-time employees essentially. You compare that to, um, you know, you compare that to, you know, twelve, twelve. What's that? Twelve members in the BTP of Transport Authority. Okay, that's related to the that's, number of authorities. Yeah, that's the, that's, not that's the number of authorities. Okay. But I mean, so it's 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 very big, and I think it's not even just it's not quite the size. I think it's this the. It's just the level of policy responsibility and the level of decision-making responsibility, particularly. Uh, so there are other sort of agencies that we 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 talk about in other countries that have got that are maybe bigger. I think the the Rijkswaterstaat in 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 Netherlands is bigger than than that. But the number of decisions that are taken by DFT that yeah. that relate to UK transport policy are, are are much bigger than than any of our other countries. So you've got you've got a bit of a hierarchy there. So you've got sort of the, the DFT at the centre. Then you've got the key agencies and public bodies. So those are the the arms length. Organ- so I, I suppose Crossrail would be as an example would be in there as well um, as a sort of an organisation. Our arms length body like HS2. Um, where does Highways England? Oh yeah, Highways England. Sorry. So then outside of that, then you have the state owned enterprises like Network Rail, uh, like the the DFT's operator last resort, like the like Highways England. So you've got this. And then the university, and then on the other side, but sort of a similar level of you've got research bodies like universities and sort of some of the other organisations. So, 
very centralized the dft at the core and, and as you say holding the levers of decision making even if they don't have the, the, the you know if, if even though they don't have necessarily the same numbers as some of the other centralized organizations in other countries okay um yeah, and, and that certainly is reflected in some of the feeling within the transport industry is that the DFT, certainly within railways, the DFT has a huge amount of control. Um, for a while, we had the Strategic Rail Authority that, that had some control, but that was levered away. Um, uh, yeah, that was uh, when it was wrapped up, all of that went back to the DFT. And one of the consequences of the structure of the railway, as an example, it's not quite to the same extent for roads, but the railways are incredibly fragmented, which means that you have to have lots of people writing rules to make sure that all those fragmented bits talk to each other. And that inevitably results in centralization, strangely enough. It ends up resulting in more government um, control or more state uh, control. Yeah, okay. Um, anything else? And the modal split is interesting. So this... These modal split figures are the what? What are these in relation to? Because they're slightly different to the modal shares. I suppose they're passenger. These are passenger journeys, so it's not not relating to freight. Um, and it, it's an indicator. Yeah. So so the uh, yeah. Is there anything you want to say about the modal split? Just to sort of talk about how that's derived. Kelly, anything? I mean. Um, I mean, I would. I, I realize. I, I think it is just for for England as well, right? I think that's. Yeah. Um, not sure whether that's clear. Uh, okay. I, I can't actually. Sorry, this is only just come up, but I can't actually see the the screen you're sharing. Oh, really? Uh, hmm. Not right now. Okay, I yeah. Um, so at the moment, I have page eighteen up. So if you've got the PDF report in front of you, I've got page eighteen yeah, up. Yeah, sorry, sorry. It's just if it's grid view, it it cuts off. Um, ah, okay. Ah, right. Yes, <laughs> that's that's fine. Um, so yeah, so I, I just basically there's modal split of about sixty percent for for car versus two two and five percent for for train and bus and then 26 percent for walking two percent for cycling so i just if there's anything yeah it's just whether that that's it says ifg analysis rather than dft figures which is why i, I kind of was uh, curious no, we that's just our analysis of the national travel survey so that's what we use okay. and that's why it's just england because the, there is not a comparable nts equivalent for the devolved nations which is kind of annoying yeah i've come across that problem before when i've been trying to kind of pull things together it's slightly frustrating i'd end up i end up using the dft modal share stats which are much more broad brush and not particularly uh and they include for all journeys so they include freight as well which perhaps isn't as useful right so that's that one um is it worth is it worth jumping to the other countries or do you think like to look at the other countries uh sections or do you think there are some things to pull out of there that we haven't talked about already i think we've kind of talked about centralized responsibility and some of the problems so you talk about some of the challenges here which is interesting um uh, yeah, so anything you want to pull out before we jump to the next country? I, I say it's not all bad. It's so mm, okay, having yeah. a having centralization does allow you to have a kind of critical mass of people who are involved. So our, our sort of whole perspective throughout this whole thing is, is with sort of evidence, looking at kind of evidence use and analysis. Having, if you are centralizing everything and you are a relatively big country, it gives you enough people who are working on it to uh, to have kind of deep, capable expertise in the civil service if you have a much much smaller civil service that doesn't do anything to do with evidence it's, it's more difficult and we saw that in a couple of our other our other countries um, and theoretically as well it might allow allow you to transfer that evidence more easily into policy if people are kind of both physically proximate or they're maybe not currently but in terms of like organizationally proximate as well and there's sort of more movement between those kind of uh, those kind of teams uh, but yeah there's all sorts of problems uh, uh, that, that come with it as well yeah, so it's, I, I mean, it's, yeah, nebulous to understand. There are so many, I mean, 
this is what the challenge of a paper like this is that there's so much that you could pick and uh, like any research project like you could go off down avenues and sort of do case studies and all sorts of kind of detail but actually um trying to keep you know you, you'd end up doing it for 20 years right there's so much there's so much going on that that um particularly as as the, the world of transport policy is quite um mobile at the moment shall we say um i, I suppose yeah. So it's in fact, was that was that for, for both of you actually? Maybe Kelly. Was that was that a challenge for this? Was it a, a challenge to kind of keep keep at a certain level of de- a detail and con- keep consistent on that without disappearing down rabbit holes? Did you find that a, a challenge? Yeah, absolutely. I think the the report, the way we were kind of structuring the report, changed quite a few times oh, yeah. in the process of writing it. Um, so, you know the IFG especially likes to kind of they're saying every paragraph having an argument to it whereas I think Alice and I both had a tendency to think oh this is really interesting let's explore it more and that was particularly difficult with like I, I found with all of the the country comparators mm. where the, there's just a like a temptation to to kind of explain it more than kind of put it forward any argument um and there were so many interesting case studies as we said there was a whole like large box on the Batuvarite route um because yeah, we got into reading about that, and it was fascinating. It did, you know, the report was already growing so long that yeah, that we did need to did need to be quite brutal with cutting it down and focusing on on trying to pull out the kind of higher level arguments a lot of the time, backing it up with detail where we could. But um, yeah, it's narrowing down some of our some of the focus. So is that common across all of the policy domains, or did you find that this transport uh, report was kind of particularly? bad for having kind of interesting rabbit holes to disappear off down so from my experience this transport report was the worst for that in that it was just a like it was such a broad topic mm. um a lot of the reports i've worked on otherwise for example i did a report on um the sewell convention that's got its own like narrow focus whereas the use of evidence in transport policy yeah, it's pretty nice it's, it's huge yeah, yeah. so you know we, we had this focus on for example institutions and analysis and things just to to give it quite like that strong framework to go in but yeah there was definitely a lot more scope for for um yeah rabbit holes so what I'll do is, unless you catch, catch me on anything, we'll whiz forwards to because there's there's a lot of detail. I think it's worth conscious of time. We'll there's 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 a few things about the different organisations, scrutiny of evidence. So particularly, you pull pull out the fact that the scrutiny of evidence is inadequate. And I think we'll look at these when it comes to recommendations. We'll maybe pick out some of the the kind of the detail. But, but there's basically for for people on here watching. Uh, hello, all of you watching. Um, this report it's very it's very clearly written. So there's nothing inaccessible in here. So um, particularly these sections, um, yeah, it, it's interesting that you t- I'm not a huge fan of the National Infrastructure Commission, and it was interesting to read your words about the NIC and, and, and what their relationship is. They're a body of the Treasury, but they work with, they kind of work in opposition. Wait, to- I, I, I think it's fair to say we're more positive than NIC than you are, but that <laughs> it might be a low bar to clear. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, the IFG has historically has written reports. There's a whole set of reports in 2018 uh, that wrote on infrastructure uh, that, that are really pretty good. And I, I sort of recommend that are focused on infrastructure delivery as well as sort of evidence. Mm. Uh, but one of the things we discussed in there is that or my predecessors did, is that um, the NIC should be, uh, I think, an executive non-departmental public body, which so, so it should move, it shouldn't have that tie to the treasury even if they're independent they are independent but it, it you know that it's not nothing is ever perfect yeah, i would say yeah. Uh, yeah very diplomatically put i i i yeah i think my i think i get a bit more red-faced in my description of the, the nic the thing is theoretically the nic would be to my mind would be a really good thing because they pull together 
policy and strategic direction in a but they they don't they kind of anyway yeah but that's for another discussion I've I've said quite enough about the NSC but no that's that's um yeah that's an interesting perspective so uh, scrutiny of evidence we'll we'll come back to that right we're going to do the overseas comparisons because it's it's already twenty to this is what it's twenty to eight already right let's get our um let's let's go and have some waffles in the Netherlands uh, oh, I, I said I wasn't going to do stereotypes uh, although I, I all I can think about now is is actually having some delicious waffles in the Netherlands anyway right I digress the Netherlands. Tell us about um, what you found when you looked at the data for the Netherlands. Uh, the data or more or, generally? Or more generally. <laughs> Both. So either or. Uh, if you want to start with a broad brush, maybe, and then and then kind of drill down onto what you kind of, some of the interesting things you looked at in terms of data. Uh, sure. So, I mean, the broad, for broad brush, um, I think the Netherlands, the thing we by far that we found most interesting about it was their use of research institutes. Um, I think that that so they have kind of the Netherlands Environmental Assessment Agency, PBL, the Council for the Environment and Infrastructure, RLI, and another plan bureau, which is CPB, which kind of works in the area as well. Mm. Um, and in the UK, we don't currently have a kind of um, publicly funded research institute, which so I think that was to see a country which made such like great use of those was a really interesting comparison. Um, and so we talked a lot with kind of representatives from those research institutes about um how what they thought um how independent they were how they like the the um effect that that had the evidence that they could produce um generally they had like formal relationships with the the department's fixed budgets but then quite a lot of freedom over um especially their methods um and then could start a lot of their work on their own initiative as well ah, interesting. So, um, yeah, yeah. yeah so um so yeah, that was that was really interesting. Um, and I think although we did find that they had been like kind of increasingly sidelined in the past ten years, um, in t- in favour of like consultancies that could work a bit more quickly. I think yeah, generally with the um, yeah, it was very interesting to kind of see that that contrast to, to the UK's in terms of where they they look for evidence primarily. Um, I think that was the, like probably the main thing from Netherlands. Alistair, do you have anything on this? I would say the other thing is the kind of not just that those institutions exist, but they tend to have quite a lot of longevity. Oh, the yeah. the two plan bureaus are post Second World War, but and have been, you know, in the Netherlands policy space for for decades, uh, and they obviously have very long running planning for regional sort of job, regional governance, mm. regional infrastructure, famous for for sort of um, transport first. Uh, planning places like Almere and, and, and places like that and um, so that was the other sort of contrast we found to the UK we have a ten- tendency in the UK to sort of chop and change institutions when we get bored of them yeah. uh, the rail in- the rail industry not rail industry but like the rail sector this happens quite a bit um, whereas some of our other countries had stuff that had been going on a lot longer and that that helped uh, for policy stability and people kind of knew knew where they stood and knew what the relationships were yeah, that's really interesting. I, I suppose that that role is much as it'd be nice if it was undertaken by universities. Okay, there's some university research, but actually that role is entirely undertaken by the big four uh, kind of consultancies, right? Uh, like basically in the UK, like, it's almost entirely done by the by by the big uh, kind of uh, pure consultancies, right? Uh, it, it does depend a lot on, oh, okay. on what kind of research you, it is. So if you go and so. My, my sort of interest is particularly kind of economic research and um, 
stuff to do with transport appraisal and, 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 and analysis. And a lot of that is done by a relatively small number of academics and a relatively small number of institutions, uh, UCL, okay. ITS Leeds, uh, UWE yeah. in Bristol, Imperial. Uh, and they do a lot of it. Uh, and it's less the big four who do get quite heavily involved in kind of rail contracty stuff, but it's more the big consultancies. It's your ACOMs, WSPs, Jacobs, etc. Do a lot of do well fair bits of the the research as well. Ah, okay, so some of that spatial planning, so the early stuff before it starts becoming modally specific, it is actually some of the engineering consultancies. Um, uh, even though they are, it's kind of perhaps the pure consultants doing that work. It is the, the ACOMs and the and the Jacobses. That is interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, and as you say, there's a hugely diverse amount of research there, so it's been done by 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 a wide range. But it's in. I think that longevity of an institution existing is that's a very interesting takeaway. That's a really interesting takeaway. Um, anything else about the Dutch before we whiz on? I, I've noticed that they've got a twenty year. They have a twenty year long term plan, which for me that doesn't feel like that much of a horizon. But does it? Is it rolling? So does it continue to move on every year, or does it? How, how do they update that? Yeah, so that's the M M I R T, and that kind of gets updated every two years, I think. So it gets uh, changed. So other countries have a similar sort of approach. Sweden has a similar similar kind of approach. When we get, we'll get there. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Right. Let's 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 jump forwards to Sweden, as as described. They have the national transport plan in relation to that, so that's good. Um, yes. Yeah. So uh, Kelly, and anything that you want to tell us about Sweden? Uh, I think Alistair is probably best for oh, Sweden. Yeah. Sure local sweden expert uh <laughs> man who has never been to sweden and so the thing the interesting thing about the, sweden is their ministry is really tiny mm. uh, so 50, 50 people who work on transport uh, but they have very large kind of semi-independent civil service agencies uh, and uh, i'm not sufficiently familiar with swedish sort of constitutional background but that is not Com not uncommon uh, that is kind of across all, all policy areas so but what you have there the kind of interesting thing is much more things are public and we sort of discuss this a bit later we talk about scrutiny but it's more common to talk about for sort of directions to be given to traffic for cats who are the kind of like the nearest proxy to bits of dft that we're inter interested in here to say you know we are we are asking you to provide advice on a a national transport plan for the next 15 years and traffic Burkett will respond and will publish that advice you know in a, a sort of formal way back to the to the ministry i think that we found that pretty interesting uh the other other thing is they've got this thing called k2 which is kind of quite unusual it's a sort of international public transport public transport research center that's a kind of funded by a mixture of their innovation agency and central government and kind of regional government as well that does kind of lots of interesting things on, on just public transport research uh, uh, as well. Um, so we, we found that sort of a particularly kind of interesting thing, interesting thing about Sweden. Uh, and the sort of final thing is that there's, we found, or certainly we were told, there's a lot more permeability. So it's more common for people to go between local regional government academia and central government so uh, oh, we spoke to somebody who had started their career in local government moved to academia then moved to central government uh, as all in quite senior roles and it's i can't really think of anyone in the uk having a career sort of trajectory like that one mm. uh, it's uh, so that, that sort of that was quite quite interesting as a way of getting ideas sort of to to yeah, and that, from that, academia that, and, and and stuff yeah yeah definitely which is something that 
yeah, okay. That, uh, maybe we'll touch on that in the recommendations, but that again feels like yeah, the lack of per- that lack of movement of people across different backgrounds between industry research bodies and and policy making that doesn't feel like there is a huge amount of flow there um yeah that's that is interesting okay so that was sweden um uh we have now we're now going to skip up to we're going to in fact we're going to take a trip around the entire planet uh and many many time zones uh, and find a way over to new zealand um who wants to talk about new zealand this I, all the numbers are quite a bit smaller uh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so i think yeah just the main thing is just how empty this um infographic was and all the rest of them i was trying to cram everything on and then this one i was just like well just a lot of empty pink bits here um <laughs> their their central ministry is just tiny it's i think 163 full-time equivalent um and you know i i think the kind of this that small size gives them kind of a little bit more ability to be kind of innovative and to work closely with the other ministries i think they had the best probably um, interdepartmental working out of, or at least one of the best out of the, like it was very good, especially compared to the UK there. And I think that's enabled by kind of their small size. Um, but like the the impression we also got was that it was pretty chaotic there. Oh, yeah, you know, they had such a short electoral um, electoral time span and everything. They, you know, they've got a short um, the the government policy statement. Um, their, their their transport strategy equivalent and it just felt like everything was a bit of a mad rush and that they had these kind of great ideas about the evidence that they wanted to be using and then just no time to get it or to actually use it is that, um is that a little bit of like is that a bit of like inertia because it yeah i suppose is that the fact they're so small it can be chaotic and that if you've got a large organization it's it's a bit more treacly it's a bit more difficult for it to have lots of crazy is that sort of what what you sort of pulled out from that is it's, it's almost like the size of an organization you know that the, the size of the dft means that it can't be quite as chaotic and lots of things happening um or did you find it was more political cycle driven so I, I think it yeah i think probably both but i think yeah definitely the the, the size of it there helps in that so they had um an issue with I think it was um, embezzlement that meant that there a load of their, their like there was a clear out of senior employees and um, a lot of turnover very quickly and I think that kind of thing completely then changed the atmosphere mm-hmm. and the overriding ideas within the department in a way that you can't imagine yeah I mean you can't imagine kind of as much of a clear out of kind of senior senior employees happening on something say as big as the DFT and that having any any kind of similar impact mm-hmm. um, so yeah I, I think probably both there um i think the other main thing uh one of the main things we picked up from new zealand is again that they do not have any kind of publicly um funded uh research bodies there again and so they all but they they didn't tend to turn to like academics from from new zealand like in the uk we don't have the you know we don't have the publicly funded research body but there are these good links with the universities and a strong uk like transport academic sector and there wasn't or at least the, the perception is that there isn't the same in New Zealand. Mm, and so, um, yeah, they were turning a lot to transport ac- academics from the UK. We ah. did hear potentially that there were some biases there about kind of, you know, oh, it's good to get in transport academics from Oxford and that potentially that's why they weren't turning as much to some of the, the centres in New Zealand. But it did. So, you know, perhaps they're not fostering the same community there um, yeah, yeah. By, by ignoring it a bit. And um, uh, yeah, so that was probably the main things we pulled out from New Zealand. But I, yeah, fact, I really, really enjoyed um, enjoyed the sections on New Zealand. Oh, good. Yeah, I um, 
Yeah, working. I mean, time zones uh, to one side. I've never, yeah, I've never done any work in New Zealand. My time zones are always like either five hours ahead with India or five hours behind with like the Eastern Seaboard. So I've never, never had to deal with like what is it like thirty? Yeah, thirteen. I think thirteen hours. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a bit trickier, but um, yeah, that's it's interesting. I've got um, yeah, I've got some friends over in New Zealand, and and. I, I, all I have in my head is that the radical difference between the two islands is that like there's there's quite substantial differences and that that has policy implications. But um, uh, yeah, I suppose clusters are fairly built up area and then huge areas with nothing. Um, yeah, which... uh, I think as well the interesting thing we what, uh, is that um, not just academics from the UK, but you know, people we spoke quite a high proportion of people we spoke to in the ministry had worked in the UK or were from or were from the UK. I think there is there is quite a lot of kind of cross pollination in terms of i think people from the uk have emigrated to new zealand yeah. or people from new zealand have worked in the uk for a few years and uh, in transport and and gone back that is interesting but uh, yeah i think yeah key takeaway is that is that um it, it, and the innovation you talked about kelly is quite interesting i think maybe we'll touch on that uh, shortly that, that that was a particularly interesting point so um over to deutschland we're heading over to germany um back in europe again um who wants to take who wants to take on germany and tell us tell us the summary of germany I'll give it a go. Uh, so this is actually one of the radically simplified ones because the German ministry, the BMVI, has got like 43 sub <laughs> sub things. So it, uh, so this is a relatively simple. So uh, there are a couple. It, it is a, a, a central ministry that is quite powerful for the things that it does, which are road and rail and kind of federal road and rail. Uh, but things like airports and ports and uh, and other bits and pieces are within the uh, domain of the lander um, uh, and the regions. Uh, and that's, I guess, probably our other main takeaway here is the the kind of much greater increase in, in regional participation in policymaking. Uh, not just, you know, there are things that are regional policies, but national policy, some national policies have greater regional input than we would expect in the UK. I think we um, we were looking at drone policy um ah. uh, or and you know they formed a kind of regional board to help help with it and because some of the regions had differing opinions about whether they wanted to regulate drones which is kind of crazy if you think about it in the uk like it's if, if you try and put it in our context it's like hampshire and surrey having radically different ideas about drones it just it it doesn't really fit within our frame of reference for what we think local areas and regions do yeah, um yeah yeah, that's like so, fundamentally deep rooted thing in 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 the UK is is our or certainly in GB is our yeah innate innate acceptance of an entirely centralised approach to to policy and thought like that is yeah um yeah it's the sort of thing that Tom Tom Forth talks a lot about devolution I'm sure yeah you're both nodding yet yeah, Tom Tom wrote a very long thread about this report so uh, yeah <laughs> it was good actually I uh, yeah it was um. Tom and I, we, yeah, we intersect and in sometimes we think exactly the same thing and sometimes we d- differ, particularly on things like devolution. But um, increasingly, I'm finding myself agreeing with him in devolution terms, given politics at the moment. But um, yeah, it, it's interesting. That devolution, uh, so the things that he talked, the reason I mentioned Tom is because he puts up lots of different case studies of different examples of things where devolution um, influences policy. And yeah, and actually, Kelly, I dare say I'll be looking forward to the next report that you put out on devolution if... Um, because it's it's interesting to see how that influence you know not just how that influences policy but how um, ideas about devolution influence policy not just the, not just devolution itself but the idea of where policy should be being made is yeah that's quite interesting anyway that's for next time I think um, 
if, if ever you'll come back on. Right, so, um, okay, anything else on Germany? I, I mean, it's a huge country and there's a lot to say, uh, yeah. No, yeah, I think, I, I've, in the interest of time, I would not blather about German research bodies for a, for a while, so don't worry <laughs> about it. Yeah, so, so basically... In terms of structure, it's centralized, centralized to the C- centralized, mostly modal structure of the kind of central ministry. Uh, the we were sort of most interested in their kind of federal transport investment plan, which is about ten to fifteen years. Most recent one was twenty fifteen. That uh, allocates most of the kind of big road and and rail investment in in Germany. Okay, yeah. So um, those were the organisations, and then what you do in the report is you pick out. So you picked out sort of. Key areas. So you talked about research institutes across the different, um, so so kind of themes about the different research institutes. Um, you talk about local and regional government. So this is to do with constitutional arrangements and uh, and sort of devolution, right? This section is talking about devolution, um, and how that influences the differences, um, particularly in yeah. So so kind of picking out these. It's kind of what we've talked about already. So I'm whizzing through this partly because we've got three minutes until eight pm, uh, and with with thirty one pages through. I said twenty three. I wasn't actually that far off uncomfortably. Um, it's because all the fun stuff happened at this point, right? We'll go through, we'll get, we'll get to recommendations, and everything will speed up theoretically. Um, so then, talking about size and, uh, and the sizes of different organisations and how that influences their, how effectively they use evidence. Um, essentially, yeah. So the, the, I'm going to b- kind of blast through this. So then, uh, kind of, and I think I'll blast through section three as well because I think it's the conclusions where it'll give you a chance to sort of explain and talk about what what we've gone through, but. It's kind of going it's a through. devastating critique of me going on about tag for fifteen pages at a time. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a, it's a niche it's a niche habit. Don't worry. So, uh, no, yeah, it, it all comes through. It comes through in our, in our conclusions. Yeah, nice one. So, so the analysis of evidence is where you kind of talk about. So you go into detail about the UK's some detail about the UK's approach. Um, this is a, a key line for me. Was the fact that there's this huge weight on benefit cost ratios, um, and. And it dominates, the, yeah, the, the phrase dominating thinking. You said that lots of your interviewees picked that out. I think that, that certainly matches my understanding is that there is a, a an almost meaningless focus on benefit-cost ratio to the point where people are forgetting what the whole point of the infrastructure underneath it is for, um, which is which can only be a bad thing. Um, yeah, so there's so there's some talk about Value for Money Guidance acting to remove... So there's, there's it's not that that is an entirely purposeless system. It's just that, yeah, there's... there's Benefit cost ratios and uh, yeah, so this is your section on tag. Uh, so there's lots on BCR, and it's worth everyone if people want the detail, dive into it. It's it's good decision making, concentrating on a narrow range of re- of scenarios. That I think is a is a really common familiar thread as well. So so um, yeah, so lo- looking at kind of narrow ranges of forecasting, tra- traffic forecasting, for example. Um, the only thing I, I'd pull out pull out there is the the fact that some of that is sort of driven legally. In the sense, in the way that there's some kind of uncertainty, not yeah, people don't want to express uncertainty uh, or or look at a really diverse range of scenarios when you're entering into these quite complicated legal processes about NSIPs and development consent orders and Transport and Works Act orders, and you're going to public inquiry, and you don't want to be standing in front of a a planning inspector and saying, well, actually, in, in three out of seven scenarios that we've run it through, there's no point building this scheme. Yeah, you know that incentivizes people to go really narrow, and I think that that produces less good schemes. Phil Goodwin has um, a really good point, which is that we should look at we should do the most and least positive uh, forecast for everything. So you should have a scheme, and you should have the most negative and the most positive, and that will give you a better idea of making more resilient schemes. That's all I'd say on that. Yeah, that's very interesting. Okay, and and yeah, I suppose. 
and maybe we'll pick up on this later, but that, it feels like there is an over that we are overburdened with legislation. Uh, and the legislation is there to make sure that the decisions being made at a strategic level and, and below are, are, are being made in a way that's publicly accountable, right? That's, that's the purpose of that. It's, it's for public accountability. But is, yeah, do you touch on, maybe you touch on it later, um, whether, you know, whether Transport Works Act orders and, and that level of rigour to the point where people are afraid to say the wrong thing, is that, you know, that doesn't feel productive to me. It feels like there are better ways to do that. Um, maybe we'll touch on that later. Yeah, there, there, it gets very complicated and I'm not a lawyer. Uh, but yeah. I think that it is challenging to reconcile with the sort of legal structures that we have and that people will have um, very valid concerns about property rights or environmental impacts of things that, that are sort of legislated th uh, through through inquiries. So there are some difficulties there. It'll be really interesting to see what comes out of the DFT's project speed you know, yeah. and, and stuff like that. And they've said in the National Infrastructure Strategy, there will be some revisions to the NSIP process. Uh, so it will be interesting to see if anything kind of comes to try and say, well, actually, you know, should we look at this in a different way? Yeah, that that would be interesting. Yeah, uh, and the duplication of process, like as has been talked about, and this is something that's picked up that was picked up by the Scottish Greens actually in their rail policy report, is the duplication of processes between you know subgroups of of the answer to, for example, DFT or Transport Scotland, and then the DFT or Transport Scotland themselves almost duplicating those processes within within Stag or WebTag. Um, so you know, Network Rail's grip process. Um, which is basically, if you drew out any project management process, it would look like grip. Like those eight breakdowns are basically any project management process. But within that, the stage gates, some of the pro some of the hoops you have to jump through are very similar or or indeed identical to ones that you have to do through web tag. And that feels like, but you have to do them as an elongated Gantt chart the whole way through. So, um, yeah, it's uh, some interesting things to kind of to pick out there. <clears throat> um, yeah, we're mass mashing our way through 8 p.m. I'm so sorry, uh, everyone. Actually, I'm sorry to our guests. Everyone on here in the chat's loving it. So um, uh, no sympathy to you in the chat, but uh, guests, apologies. So um, transport models are important, but their limits are not well understood. That's very interesting. As a, yeah, so they're, they're, and, and this comes to transport. I, I think if we pick this up in the conclusion, that'd be good, because it, it, I think the way that transport models feed into this is related to transparency. Um, so I think that'll be interesting to pull out. Um, and, and then you're picking out some of the other issues that your interviewees have picked out, which is interesting as well. So um, commercial sensitivities and capabilities, um, constraining scrutiny on, on uh, or rather, actually, it's better for me to phrase it exactly as you've written it, modelling scrutiny being too constrained by commercial sensitivities and capabilities. Um, assumptions and limitations being poorly understood by decision makers, uh, perverse incentives. These are all things that feel familiar to me as someone who writes about transport policy. Um, these are all things that feel very, very vividly familiar as problems um, uh, and challenges. Uh, political vision and decision making don't always align with objective transport appraisal. Yet that's certainly true. So things like carbon emissions are uh, kind of a key example of where that feels connected. And pacers. And pacers. Yeah. Yeah. Get rid of pacers, but pacers don't disappear. That that sort of thing. Yeah, they are. Oh, you literally do mention pacers. Yeah. To, you're both nerds. For, both of you are equally nerds for allowing that to remain in the report. Kelly, you're not getting a real direction. <laughs> yeah it's um yeah this was quite something literally oh dear yeah so essentially there was no way to make the economics stack up because what <laughs> because they're fully depreciated really cheap to run so but and i'm sure dft tried very hard um but it just ran into this politics problem because politics versus economics and you had and you had the ministerial direction saying i am aware that it's a poor bcr to to replace them um 
but I'm telling you, I'm instructing you to. Uh, so yeah, that that's a, a classic example of politics versus you know, what we think of as objective, analytical, evidence-led decisions. Yeah. And the reality is, yeah, a benefit. All BCRs are, are, are subject to the same forces. You know, whether those, you know, to to a lesser or greater extent, but they are all subject to those forces. So getting too fixated on BCRs at the expense of being honest. This is why it's so important to have policy direction, right? Because if you, if you don't have adequate policy direction, that objectivity and subjectivity, that, that grey area, um, you can't hold anyone to account if you don't know what the overall high-level objectives are. There's nothing to hold those ultimately subjective decisions um, uh, accountable, which is which is kind of what, you, you're, what you're pushing on here, I think uh, you pull on later yeah. on. Um, here we are. Yep, some some more of these. Another example. Yeah, basically, I'm enjoying this because it poo poos BCRs um, in isolation. It's not saying BCRs should be got rid of and never looked at again, but it's the, it, context is really key. I, I think you pull that out really well. Um, to, oh, at least that's my interpretation. Anyway, I, I admit I hate BCRs because they, they they're put on a pedestal and treated as sacrosanct rather than thinking about the wider strategic objectives. Um, yeah, transparency. So here's a key thing: transparency and uh, lack of transparency in transfer decisions. And and one example, and I don't just HS2 isn't what I spend all my time rabbiting on about, but it's a good example of where the lack of the perceived lack of transparency. Actually, HS2 has been more transparent, I think, than a lot of projects. But the trouble is, this it's so big, there's such a body of evidence, people find it inaccessible, which basically amounts to the same thing. That that is essentially still not transparent, even if even if they're being more open. And that leads to people thinking there's a conspiracy. It leads to people thinking, well, this big project that's happening, I don't get what it's for. Why is it appearing? And and that and and as much that and then people talk about, oh, do the existing railway. Well, the lack of transparency about what's happening and the decisions being made about the existing railway further f- feed into that feeling of lack of transparency in transport, and and it's sort of a, vir- a disvirtuous cycle. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, not publishing information leads to more criticism. This is all very, very familiar. Um, there are lots of things here. We're already hammering through time. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, like rationale for different forms of analysis. Um, open data. Uh, yeah, there's some stuff about open data, which is really good. I was glad you picked out open data. Um, but evaluation being fragmented and inconsistent um, and pro- research priorities not being clear. Um so the, lots of very interesting sort of, there's a huge amount of very interesting stuff and so so before I move into the next section which is um kind of looking at the overseas comparators which I'm going to whiz I'm actually going to whiz through because I think those comparators at the end will conscious of time uh, yeah, so say, the, what I say is they're actually mostly quite similar that's one of the things you know there was a yeah. there's a DFT international appraisal comparison about 8 years ago that uh, Tom Worsley and Pete Mackey did and we, you know, we did a, a something vaguely similar here. And actually, if, if they all tend to use CBA in some way. Hmm. Um, uh, New Zealand does a lot more interesting stuff about living standards and having stuff that works for both a living standards way and a and a traditional CBA way. That's kind of the most interesting thing. But oh, actually, okay. if you look at it, they they all use some form of benefit cost ratio. It's and really, I think sorry, go on, Kelly. all of them apart from New Zealand also mentioned kind of putting too much emphasis on that. I think yeah. several kind of I know someone in the Netherlands was like, oh, I think we're the most fond of numbers. And I was like, I think our other interviewees will disagree. But yeah, it's <laughs> definitely much everyone kind of kind of echoed that over reliance. Interesting. That is very interesting. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, I think we'll pick up some of this in the conclusions. I think the key thing is is that there's there's a lot of very useful information to, to kind of pull out of there if anyone wants to flick through and, and kind of um, pull in some of the information there. I think, yeah, just really... It, the interviewees... It's like, it's, there's just really valuable information coming out from, from 
and it's interesting that all the people you spoke to, some of these things, and it's what you'd expect, I suppose. But it's, I suppose it's just kind of interesting and reassuring to see some of these these kind of these themes coming out really, really obviously. Um, was there anything that surprised you in terms of the when you were speaking to interviewees or, or kind of trends that you hadn't expect kind of expected going into this? Or kind of responses, perhaps that that, or, or kind of multiple, you know, different people saying the same thing that you didn't expect, or or did you very much go into this with a with an open mind and just open ears? I think we certainly. I came into it with a, knowing a fair bit about DFT appraisal. I was surprised that everyone in every country said uh, numbers are really important. We all do CBA, and then if you actually look at the evidence on terms of what projects get get approved in other countries, all of our comparator countries. Uh, have some sort of research about it, it doesn't actually correlate very well. So mm. certainly there's research in Germany, Netherlands and Sweden and elsewhere that actually has a pretty weak correlation. So everyone says it's fantastically important, but then it doesn't relate brilliantly to what gets built, which is kind of odd. But in the UK, you can't actually you can't actually work that out because the data isn't just, just isn't there to understand whether, whether it does correlate well or not. Interesting. So, right, this section, section four, now... This, I'm, I'm a big fan of skills and people, and I think fundamentally these, the, the, the people involved in, in an organization at any level of policy or implementation or whatever it is are absolutely critical. However, having said that, because of time, I think I'm going to wish through this section incredibly quickly um, so to entirely contradict my own personal feelings on how important people are. Um, but is there anything in this section that you think is worth kind of putting front and center that isn't in the conclusions and recommendations? Just DFT suffers less from rapid turnover than some of the other departments. So uh, IFG's written other reports uh, identifying the problems of rapid turnover in civil service. DFT is relatively stable. Ah, interesting. Because um, that's, that's, a, that's a kind of a standard stereotype of, within the industry looking at DFT. The stereotype is that there's a lot of churn. But it's interesting so it could be much worse, less. is yeah, what I'm okay. saying. That's interesting, yeah. Kelly, is there anything that you in this section particularly that you, you thought found interesting or... Um, I think comparatively, again, New Zealand, very high turnover, um, contributing to the kind of chaotic nature. Yeah. I think it's interesting as well how um, research institutes that we mentioned before with longer, bit more longevity also play a role in um, supporting institutional memory, um, often being able to fill in the gaps that the departments themselves are not so sure about, um, which obviously institutional memory is a big problem in the UK as well. Um, we did hear about that at DFT, despite the kind of a bit more stability. Um, yeah, that's probably what I'll draw out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, that's in, okay. That's very interesting. The two two kind of quite interesting. So, and and, and I, th- I suppose that'll get pulled out in these um, in in the conclusions. So, without further ado, we uh, we're not doing too badly. I'm so sorry, folks. Um, well, actually, you two. I'm so sorry, both of you two. Um, ten minutes overdue. I think we we've got it's it's eleven minutes past eight. If I stop saying eleven minutes past eight, describing the time, we'd be able to crack on. Um, the conclusions. Um, uh, yeah, I suppose. I could go through these, but actually, do either of you want to go through and kind of chat about some of them? I suppose, maybe, yeah, in terms of the UK, so this is all comparing to the UK, and then and then you kind of look at what we could learn from overseas and some conclusions on that. Um, and there are some common themes throughout these, and, and I pick out two of the most interesting ones after, after this, after we finish going through the, the PDF. But um, so, so the UK has strengths, and it is worth picking those out because we can learn from as much from our strengths as from our weaknesses, um, so, so kind of, yeah, do, do either of you want to talk about those strengths that the UK has in, in our approach? Yeah, so, I mean, the, I'm a bit more sympathetic to TAG and, and BCRs than, than, than you are, I think. Uh, it, it, I, I 
I'm not gonna have a great affinity for it, but like there are good things about that. It's pretty stable. It's been long lasting. There's a lot of expertise about it. It allows you to compare relatively diverse types of projects and Mm. and prioritize theoretically prioritize funding. Um, uh, I think that's pretty pretty good. I think that that our our main thing is uh, above what you you might go into is that stuff crossing departments is pretty can be pretty poor. There are some areas where it's good. It's zero emission vehicles is good as a good the joint unit is quite successful but the classic housing and transport problem yeah uh, if we had about three more years we might have been able to solve it yeah. but uh, <laughs> yeah. it was just stuff going between clg and dft for, for it is the policies are just not particularly harmonious yeah and it's that's that's got to be and i it's a discussion i have a lot on on twitter it's just that housing and transport are fundamentally interlinked sets of policies okay there's individual thing like there are individual things that maybe don't, but in reality, almost any transport policy um, has an impact on housing policy. You know, ticketing has an impact. All any 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 policy you can pick will have an influence, and the the, the lack of connectivity there is a major. Yeah, that feels like a major problem. Um, some of the other things you picked out is it's worth saying, and I don't like flying the the union flag too often, particularly at the moment. But it is worth saying that, and you've picked this out, is that the processes we have, the the analytical processes we have, are at the forefront of international practice. That is actually an interesting point of observation. We are, even if there are problems, we are still quite good at doing the 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 analytical processes behind coming up with policy decisions. That's an interesting conclusion. Um, and, and another positive thing is about the fact that there is an authoritative academic community. So actually, yeah. So I, so I was wrong earlier about the big four. Actually, this is I suppose this is referring to um, you know the the uh, ITS in Leeds and and sort of Imperial and some of these other uh, kind of university groups, you know, kind of subgroups within universities that focus on transport policy. So those are interesting. And then you talk about the low turnover of people in the DFT. That is that's a surprising conclusion to be honest. But um, it's, yeah. it's all relative. Yeah. So, uh, so with the background in local government, the turnover in DFT is much higher than in local government. Mm. But if you compare it to the Treasury or the Cabinet Office or MHCLG, it's relatively lower at DFT. Yeah, yeah. But then some of the downside things. So we've already talked about the fact that um, the, the evidence crossing multiple departments is inconsistently used. Um, yeah, so, so significant analytical capability and preponderance of economists in the DFT, which means that other forms of evidence can appear neglected in transport decision-making. That feels very vivid. Um, so social research, uh, evaluation, or, or indeed engineering. Uh, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and so, yeah, so the next thing, that, so these are key, I suppose these are the key conclusions that I, I pulled out. So the next set is, is about the fact that the way evidence is used in decision-making is not transparent. And for me, democratic, you know, in a in a democracy, particularly the social democracy that I'd quite like us to live in, um, for me, transparency is key. And that doesn't mean dragging out projects by another ten years or so so that everyone can have their say. But we can, as a government, we can as government government can be, and, and as policymakers, government can be more innovative in the way that it reaches out to the public and makes things more, more clear and more um, easy for public the public to scrutinise, journalists to scrutinise. Um, is that are those the themes that you sort of pulled out in this conclusion? Then you, you, you've said that you don't think that trans, decision making is transparent, or the way that evidence is used in decision making is transparent. And what else? Kind of anything else you want to say around that? Uh, yeah, I think it, we don't really see why it shouldn't be. Particularly stuff like publishing business cases. You could theoretically request them all under environmental information regulation or freedom of information, nominally. Um, so we just. I, 
if you we think a lot of the debates about regional investment does tag yeah. prioritize north or south does it prioritize x or y it could be really easily solved if the dft just committed to publishing uh, that information as an open data set just any project that kind of went through as a dft funded thing just had was just on a database of business case and of, of that yeah that it'd be it'd be incredibly useful from an it'd be interesting from an analysis perspective if nothing else to look at those um yeah kelly and we yeah. saw it being done like so in netherlands in the netherlands as a requirement to publish the business cases in, in in new zealand it's very very open including um kind of publishing cabinet briefings and so on so it's kind of you know i think the the comparators just really showed that it can be done and that you know none of them spoke about that as a negative or or kind of talked about that as a real kind of constraint on them interesting um, and and yeah, so so there's the, the idea here. So then the next bullet point ties into it, which is the idea that modelling an economic appraisal is a, a pretty complicated black box. That its scrutiny and openness is therefore limited. Um, very yeah, again, it's like very highly technical professionals. Um, you know, th this kind of leads into something that I'm pushing on. Uh, well, not basically a, th a theme that I want to pick up a bit more later this year. Actually, is about the fact that the actual tools and it ha can't just be analytical tools, but the actual tools are often expensive bits of kit to actually yep. get the licenses for these. Um, and that's a blocker. If you've got a local community organization that is interested in maybe developing a proper business case, they basically, they always have the numbers stacked against them because they can't, against other you know, kind of projects to perhaps have the involvement of larger organizations because they don't have access to these tools. Um, and that that's problematic and often can be discriminatory, you know, in a, a kind of a, uh, maybe not legally, but sort of certainly it ends up in entrenching existing kind of um, problems, shall we say. Cycling is the best example here. So uh, yeah. Robin Lovelace and Rachel Aldred and, and other people have, have done a lot of work on developing new cycling sort of appraisal bits and pieces. So PCT, cycle tool. Yeah. PCT uh, and other, other bits and bobs that are kind of all open data or they're all on GitHub. That it would be really good, really hard to do, but it'd be really good to see other other modes of transport following down that 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 route. So um, yeah, watch this space is all I'm going to say about that. Um, without wanting to drop Robin in it. Anyway, right. So um, uh, next, and and yeah, so evaluation is inconsistent. But this, but you point out that this is the same for all of the countries you examined. That there's there's this inconsistency. You're both nodding, Kelly. Yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about that then? Uh, sure. I mean, I think we just, I think, I think every single interviewee we spoke to um, mentioned ex post evaluation as a problem. Actually, many of them um, mentioned kind of Highways England as as a kind of example of of, of good international practice that they would look to, um, but that you know for various reasons, often political, um, but also just kind of resource reasons, it was just not happening. There's just not the political will for it. Whether it's kind of worried about kind of um, looking kind of well, well well i mean i think as well um there, there'd be issues uh, you know around kind of how long these schemes take there was often you know that the new politicians would be in and so there wasn't yeah as you said there wasn't the political appetite for it and when they're investing money no one wanted to announce that they were investing money into to looking at something that had already been done that was probably expensive in the first place yeah. so we've yeah we heard a lot about kind of the reasons why it wasn't being done um uh, yeah, without a huge amount of, of great examples of it happening, a lot of commitments to do it more. Um, I think New Zealand's new um, strategy commits to commits to doing more evaluation, and we heard a lot of that kind of discussion, but without a, a huge amount of concrete 
kind of um, concrete examples. Alistair, if you want to come in on that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. We, had, we heard 50 different people complaining that evaluation wasn't very good in transport. <laughs> and if you go and look at the OECD sort of reports they've written, it's just not very good in transport. In transport, we are very interested in scheme appraisal. You know, we love spending millions and millions and millions of pounds on complicated scheme appraisal. We then sort of build it and then dust our hands off and wander off and go and build the next scheme. We're, we're, we're much less interested in coming back five years later and saying, did this scheme, you know, actually have people traveling on it, let alone transform the economy Which, of the region like yeah. we said it would. Um, but that's not just the UK. That is that is absolutely everyone. It's interesting that because uh, and the, the key example I use in, in the UK is is and it's not an isolated case, actually. Generally, rail projects, this happens. But the Borders Railway is my favorite example because it was um, <laughs> it was kneecapped early on because there was a perception that it wouldn't be very well used. The business case was all saying it's not going to be well used. All the modeling suggests this um, actually possibly someone who watches uh, she watches the show and certainly is on Twitter um, so someone involved in that process pushed back and but even so the project was sort of hampered with you know rather than being double track throughout it had uh, kind of or at least having longer double track sections and the signaling was all uh, kind of designed for much lower capacities all of that's been a problem because it's over it's massively exceeded its predicted ridership numbers um, and that's not an isolated case you know we understand that you know we understand the imp- impacts of for example rolling stock cascades so um Rob Warrens of Northern will talk about the massive improvement in ridership he saw the like almost the day they introduced the new. In fact, they're not new. The, the refurbished electric trains in Manchester made a massive difference to ridership. That's that's not an obvious big infrastructure project. That's just a, a new train appearing, having a massive inf- the new Transpennine Express trains that added you know nominally added a couple of extra coaches before the timetable collapsed in on itself back in 2018. Um, again, it released basically all of the new capacity was immediately swallowed up by this constraint. And we're not observing this. There's no, to my mind, no one is looking at understanding what this, what, what these, or, okay, there's some analysis within the train operating companies in this case, but there's, as you say, we're not learning from that. We're not updating models no. based on that. I think, yeah, I agree. I think we do, we, one of our recommendations is, uh, it's not a formal recommendation there, but it's in the, in the text, to unlock PDFH. Like, we don't, if in the in the post Williams world, assuming we have a different rail system, there is I don't understand why the passenger demand forecasting handbook should be within the domain of the of the operating companies mm. uh, and delivery group and network rail and others. It should like tag, love it or hate it. It's at least all online and like yeah, it links yeah. to all that underlying evidence. So I think if you unlock PDFH, that might help some of these debates. Absolutely. Yeah, I, there's no, there is no conceivable reason for it, to, particularly now that franchising's collapsed. There's no conceivable reason for that to be hidden away, and and it just means that we can't make proper future decisions. You know, it's um, uh, oh, David Franklin. Yeah, you're right about the TP coaches. Yeah, the 2018 thing that happened later. Uh, thanks, David Frankel, for keeping me right on my uh, anachronistic uh, tr- recent transport history. Um, see, the, the the chat keep me right all the time. What can I say? Um, so. Ah, good grief. I see I've waffled and now it's already, we've got five minutes before it's half past. Um, okay, what can we learn from overseas? I'm going to just sit that title there and, and both of you, do you both want to cut in with some of the things you reckon? Kelly, you're looking like you're about to tell me something. No, no, you've retracted. Well, if either of you want to, um, to talk a bit about what we could learn from overseas um, and then I'll jump I'll give, to the recommendations. Yeah, I'll give it a go. So I, I'll say we need to talk, we need to think about uncertainty more. Um, 
we are in a pretty uncertain world, but we have transport projects that we have a very fixed view of what the future is going to be. And we're not very good at considering what different futures might be like or what what kinds of projects that we could build that are resilient to different kinds of futures. Mm. So we talk a bit about real options analysis in there, which is just like a fancy way of saying preserving flexibility. Uh, the, you know, the classic one in rail is like um, buying a wider tract of land than you need in case you need to double the track later. Yeah. So we need to be have a more uh, better understanding of uncertainty and more flexible approach. And I think uh, kind of going right back to the start, it would be helpful if the UK had a had a more or England had a more stated transport strategy. At the very least. Uh, we argue that it needs to update the national policy statements, which are the most important documents that no one's ever read, because they govern <laughs> all of the national significantly national significant infrastructure projects. So all your big road and rail projects, they are out of date. They don't they don't account for climate change very well, mm. or post twenty eighteen commitments. They don't account for air quality or leveling up. Or so I think at the very least they need to be updated. That those those are what we'd uh, take from overseas. It was striking that everywhere else had some form of cross-modal strategy or investment plan yeah yeah now, for me the main thing i like to the flag i like to wave is the banner i like to wave is have a plan for god's sake we need a plan um and and that just always feels like something that we are fundamentally lacking in uh well no longer in the uk as you say in england um yeah um before we jump to recommendations, any, Kelly, anything else you want to pick up on that, or do you think that, are you happy that's going kind to? Of... Um, I think the the other thing was the the culture of openness, which I talked mm. about a little bit before, and kind of um, um, yeah, the, the the New Zealand publish um, cabinet briefings that we said would not that would not suit uh, the UK's setup. Um, I think that that would that would get a lot of pushback on that. But um, in terms of business cases and things, I think there's definitely things we can we can draw from abroad and just how those are treated and the the attitudes around their production. Absolutely, yeah. So, um, and the kind of the last thing you talk about in the conclusions here, and it's kind of interesting, is um, is this highly centralised nature of the approach to transport. And you say that there are some advantages. You know, it's good for the use of evidence, um, scale. There are benefits to scale, um, d- embedding expertise, um, having robust structures. But um, the idea, yeah, this is the thing that I find stupid. So, like, the I did an episode a few episodes ago was about the West Yorkshire mass transit system, right? There's four billion, qu- and they talk about four billion quid. But that four billion quid isn't just automatically being made available for that, like a project that clearly is a benefit. So just fund it. No, they're bidding against other parts of the country that also have an obvious and desperate need for transport investment. I mean, okay, we're getting into economics here, and the idea that um, there is austerity politics is nonsense, and there is no magical limit on how much we can fund. At least not within the realms of the numbers we're currently talking about. You know, okay, if I decided that I was going to pave every single road in solar panels in Britain, then we might start risking some sort of strange inflation effect. But spending a little minor fractions of percentage extra on GDP on mass transit that will grow our economy rapidly in a way that we otherwise are stagnating is a no-brainer. Anyway, part that, <laughs> part that. Um, it's really interesting that you pull that out. You pull out the fact that, that, that the idea of local governments having to bid for funding from central government is just not a good use of it's not a good use of evidence, and it's yeah, there are other consequences. It leads to, it leads to strange perverse incentives where yeah. local governments are incentivized to put in or, or sort of uh, amend schemes that they think would be politically favourable. And I think from an evidence point of view, uh, a lack of local government funding sort of hinders their ability to collect and. Uh, 
use evidence. So mm. all the organisations that we think of uh, outside national government as having a really good attitude to evidence and data and analysis. So TFL, uh, West Midlands Combined Authority, Midlands Connect, TFN, uh, Greater Manchester, like they often they fund that with long-term kind of devolved funding settlements that they can then use to put into evidence that they can then turn into making good cases for stuff and getting money and then and then you know there comes this that, that virtuous cycle yeah, yeah. Uh, and that is is kind of the key one of the key things for us from the report and i think tom picked us up on this in his thread and he, yeah there is some merit to it um we didn't we didn't get into the UK sort of underperformance at a city region level compared to other OECD countries. Uh, we could but we could have done, uh, but I think that is one of the one of the reasons is that we don't have that culture of putting things together, either making bids, making funding bids, or being awarded the funding and then developing and then and then, and then going on. It's it's all very stop start and that hinders using evidence well. Um, I should have gone it was a bit flicky screen. I'm going to jump to uh, the recommendations because we've talked about some of the issues we've talked about some of the things that work well but how do we make change how how what are the good ideas that would make change uh, that you've found out so which leads us to kind of we'll end on the or or we'll nearly end um on the the recommendations so i've jumped it's not not many pages just uh, just two pages of recommendations so um yeah if you want to talk through those recommendations reasonably briefly kelly do you want to do ministers now do the department uh, sure. So um, the, hang on. Um, sorry, I jumped sorry, on I'm page ten. Not... It's my fault. I, uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm jumping us around unhelpfully. No, I just sometimes for some reason it, my screen gets stuck on Alistair and doesn't switch back. Yeah, so. Terrible. Terrible. <laughs> um, yeah, just just for reference. And um, so yeah, we, we 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 split the recommendations by who they would um would would be affecting. And so yeah, ministers, DFT, Parliament, and, and um, kind of the other bodies. So for ministers, um, yes, we we recommended that um, the ministers and SROs retained evaluation responsibility for large projects and policies after delivery, and that the, the Transport Select Committee could then recall them and question them about that. As we said, kind of with turnover and lack of political will for evaluation. Um, then, then giving that kind of better sense of ownership we thought would really help. Um, and then otherwise, we were saying that they should be offered, ministers and SPADs who are involved in transport policy should be offered formal training um, in yeah. kind of the use of, of transport evidence, um, more broadly kind of the principles underlying it. Um, we didn't kind of conclude who exactly should be kind of giving that um, that training, could be kind of whoever's most suitable, but that, um, that should become part of the culture Absolutely, yeah, that's really good. Yeah, that the the idea of the TSC being able to recall, so getting mm-hmm. uh, getting Grayling back or you know and, and and quizzing them about certain things. Yeah, that that's that is a very that's a feels like a sensible uh, recommendation. Okay, so on to the DFT. Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll give it a go. So we we've got the the first one is on um, the national policy statements and the new we should new national strategy if or they should at least think about it, uh, and then. The other one is that they should publish the strategic economic cases for these projects and they should make it indexed and easily searchable. And I think this is this is us pushing the boat out a bit. But we said ideally they should record how the forms of evidence were weighed because you get, mm. you know, you get all of this going into a, a minister or a, a senior civil servant and then you just get a decision coming out of it. You don't have you don't have an understanding of, well, actually, they looked at economics more than distribution or they looked at distribution analysis more than economics. That would be ideal. Um then the PDFH point we sort of raised that they should that should be opened up, uh, and the, that local government and regional government should have ring fenced money for evaluation. 
Okay. Uh, so it's not, not for building money. things, but for actually no. evaluating what, what when they have built something, what that ends up achieving. Yeah. So, so basically, currently, you get a capital project and you get money for the capital project, but you've got to you've got to on your own own will and money go back a year or, and five years afterwards uh, to go out and and work out whether it worked or not. And there's no incentives to do that. Yeah. Uh, and then, oh, the final one is about skills, where we argued that the DFT should send more people to and from local and regional government and ah. other, and delivery agencies as well. Uh, we think that would be more that would be helpful in terms of getting a better understanding of local policy and getting and also getting more analytical capability into other tiers of government. Nice one. And so the last two, um, so you kind of recommendations for both Parliament and for the professional bodies and transport organisations. So you kind of say that there's that the TFC should should carry out regular evidence checks. Um, yep. on, yeah. So yeah. they should come out. They should do some inquiries on just the evidence underlying a policy. They've got a good one on young and novice drivers that they've done recently. Hmm. Um, but they should just get pick a policy, any policy, and just get everyone in and say, okay, how, what's the foundation of this policy? What's the evidence underlying it? How do, how do we get where we are on you know speed limits or or whatever it might be? Um, uh, and that would be really helpful for for getting evidence uh, in. And it should. It should and it should take a greater role in evaluation, ideally as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, and the finds about because it's not really always a kind of local uh, sufficient um, scale. So they they they're quite specialist things to do. Uh, so ideally, the professional bodies and sort of regional governance should could take a role in pooling that knowledge and evidence so they could they could do stuff on behalf of local authorities or or regional authorities so tfn could do an evaluation on behalf of you know greater manchester or ah, liverpool okay. yeah, because because yeah. they could have the number of staff to do it and then the last recommendations are to the professional bodies uh, and yes. to some of the transport organizations yeah and that's 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 just that one again that's just saying they they need to they need to pool knowledge and resources and use their economy of scale for, for that evaluation. So uh, we've rushed a little bit at the end there because my time management is hopeless. But actually, there's a lot of there's, there's a huge amount of really valuable stuff in this report. Um, uh, I'm going to go back and pick out the kind of the two, the kind of the two key. So the two key well, the kind of the two sentences that are in the conclusion that I thought were really interesting. But actually, this isn't the sum total of what's in the report. There's a lot of really interesting valuable stuff. I just want to say to both of you that it's a fantastic report. Really, really interesting um, there's a lot of stuff that a lot of people in the chat here are very interested in. Um, I picked through it in detail and I will refer to it in various bits of writing and things that I do because there's so much useful information in there. Um, and, and also lots of rabbit holes I see that are perhaps ones that you kind of stepped over or some of the ones that I sort of spot in some of the, they're some, between the lines like, oh, I bet they wanted to do some more stuff on that, that I've kind of got my brain buzzing on interesting ideas, to things to think about on this. But I, I just want to pick this quote out, really, which is um, in the conclusion, which is the way evidence is used in decision making is not transparent. And this is linked to the fact that scrutiny and openness is limited. Um, that feels like a fairly poignant sentence to summarize the UK approach. It's not all bad. There's there's some good stuff, but there are challenges. Um, yeah. Before. Right. I'm going to let's see. Firstly, let's see if this works, which it is working. Hooray. Um, I'm going to just very if, if, is there anything else you want to add before i was into the kind of the 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 closing remarks and the or anything you want to plug actually is there anything you want to plug kelly any reports coming out um uh, nothing coming out very soon i've just 
co-authored a report on um, an independent Scotland, the EU and the Anglo-Scottish border. Oh, so if anyone is me. interested in that, that's just come out. It's a firestorm. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, no, thanks so much for having us on. This has been great. Yeah, yeah. So, sorry it went horribly extended. Um, yeah, sorry, go on, Alistair. <laughs> no, I would say we're delighted. We're, we're happy to talk about this this report at, at, at length. It, it was it was fun to write, uh, even if it took, it took a while. So we're, we're really glad that uh, you, you and the chat are both pretty happy with uh, with going through it. There's a lot of very interesting stuff, a lot of very interesting stuff indeed. So um, I'm going to whiz over to my usual sort of closing remarks and then we'll whiz back to yourselves. Chuck in the questions in the chat. We've, we've got no minutes at all, but if there's any, any quick questions that I reckon can be answered quickly, um, we'll, we'll maybe do that. First of all, um, thanks to everyone who's listening to this in, in podcast form, in audio-only form. We're available on everywhere that you can get podcasts somehow uh, by the power of magic and technology. Uh, this, these, apparently... John Stone says these the PDF ones hang up pretty well. So if John, hi, I know you listen to these. Um, yeah, uh, so let me know feedback, and I'll try things I can do to make the audio work better that I that don't compromise the visuals. Blah blah blah. Um, but thanks for everyone who's listening. Um, as ever, you can support me on Patreon to make more of this happen. Um, yeah, lo- go to Patreon.com/slash/GarethDennis, and you can choose future themes. You can suggest guests. This was a suggested. Uh, you know, the, the the Patreon people suggested this episode. Very glad that you did. Um, and then also you can do that on the Discord, gethdennis.uk slash Discord. And if you don't fancy any of that, you just want to throw me a penny or two because you enjoyed this episode, then you can do that via PayPal, paypal.me slash gethdennis. I always feel uncomfortable in the ads, but uh, as pointed out by my Patreon producers, um, it's important because these things, it means that these, this continues to happen and, and I quite enjoy doing this stuff. Um, next week, relevant to some of the stuff we've just talked about, um, we're doing w- what the Welsh railway map should look like. Um, that's next week's episode, episode 57 of Rail Natter. What should the Welsh railway map look like? Um, if I'm going to take a couple of approaches. I'm going to do, if it was a blank slate, what would the railway network look like? And if we were going to actually realistically update it, what would it look like? Um, that could be interesting. Have fun with me keeping that to an hour. Anyway, oh, back to uh, our three faces here uh, of our guests. Uh, we have uh, no... Oh, right, David Shepard has asked... Um, uh, is asking about if if you saw if you had a look did you have a look at any of the big project studies or did you just base 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 the report mostly on evidence from from interviewees or did you have a look at some of the big projects in these other countries and how they looked yeah we, we had a look at some of the projects so the Batuva route is an example we looked at in the Netherlands a sort of famously controversial overrunning uh, yeah. thing as well we were looking a bit at high speed rail in Sweden there's an interesting mm. quote in the report where someone was saying that the government priorities uh, for high-speed rail with pretty poor BCRs shows that they don't care about BCRs, and that that sends a kind of different uh, a, a, a chill through the department. Um, so we, we we looked at some of the, the sort of the interesting projects that we we found in those countries that kind of typified some of the approaches. Uh, okay, um, yeah. So um, uh, Owen, it's a good question, but it's kind of like an ethereal one that I don't think any of us can answer. Which is, why would a politician go for a system that's more evidence-based when it potentially tie their hands to implement party politics? Well, this is about transparency, isn't it? If we're more transparent, I think you overcome that challenge. Right? The out the the outcomes are better, right? So transparency is painful to begin with, but it drives you to have better outcomes. So um, Kelly was speaking about New Zealand publishing like various papers openly to cabinet and stuff. And people were saying that kind of drives them to be more 
to be kind of think about things and consider evidence because they know it's going to be in the public domain and they know they're going to be scrutinized. Yeah. So it, it, it drives you to have better outcomes. And also, if evidence based means that, the, you know, unless there's a particular, OK, there are a few people in politics, I'm sure, who have really strong ideological plans for, for why they don't want to do certain things. But ultimately, you know, better transport makes people happier and makes their lives better and then they want to vote for you. So if you have more evidence, you drive the drive better outcomes. That's a good thing. Politicians like that, right? Yeah, I mean, I think we said as well that then, you know, if you're not publishing any of this stuff, there are, there'll be misconceptions and certain, like, ways people perceive the system to work. And if that's not actually how it works, if there's not biases or something, the best way to actually say that is not to just keep saying no, but to show it. Yeah. And I think the the argument about whether, like, BCRs benefit the North or the South is mostly based on a debate around uh, reports, a report published in 2006 uh, and uh, projects that were from 2003 to six. And I was in school then and I'm in my <laughs> mid thirties now. So like we shouldn't be having that debate. Like we should be publishing these things so we can have these intelligent sort of discussions that are informed. Uh, the evidence is what allows us to move on, right? If, if people, once the evidence is there, is transparent, is disseminated well clearly and it's clear to understand as well it's critical that, it, that it's, it's in a way that's clear for people to understand then yeah we can move on from all the kind of rock chucking and actually ag- agree on if we all agree on the frame of reference then we can move forward absolutely i think that's a nice kind of a nice thing to close off on um everyone thanks in the chat you've all been brilliant uh, I, I know there are lots of questions and discussions going on there but I, i've already dragged an, uh, 40 extra minutes out of these lovely people so and uh kelly and alistair it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for going through that with us um thank you and i will uh, i'll see everyone uh, i'll see everyone next week and uh yeah cheerio everyone cheerio